love for you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians. And we're saying that for the final time in 2013. In fact, I want everybody to know that this is our last Sunday of worship this year. Okay, we don't want you to be enthusiastic about it, but we do want to be clear, right? Nobody get excited, nobody have a smile too resplendent on their faces, but we will not have church next Sunday. We're going to remind you about that at the end of the service, and we're going to put it all over social media. Again, not to celebrate that fact, but to just uh, be clear about it. And you think anybody will show up next Sunday at some point? I bet you somebody will, and they'll be bitter at us. And they'll be looking for us in the new year. We were the first church in the area that I know of that did this whole no church between Christmas and New Year's kind of deal. Now those others are also doing that. So we're trendsetters. We're trailblazers in the no church way of doing church. I'm just talking to give you all time to turn to Colossians chapter 4. And we're going to read a passage of scripture. I think when we read it, you're going to say, you're going to think, man, what's he going to preach today? Out of this passage, I'm not sure anything's going to stand out. Now, if you've been with us any part of the year, you know that we've been walking through Colossians and we've done a variety of different sermon series this year. We started off 2013 with a a four week series called Radical Gratitude. Paul opens his letter to the church at Colossae expressing thankfulness to them for their faith, their hope, their love. We had a a, a variety of sermon series. We did a sermon series entitled uh, Life is Too Short. We looked at some of the great ideas that Paul talks about here. And a series called What Does Jesus Really Want from Christians? What does He really want from us? And we looked at Colossians 2, 6, and 7. He wants us to receive Him, to walk with Him, to be firmly rooted and established with Him. And then we tackled... Some of the religious ideas in chapter 2 with a series called Accidental Pharisees. And we said just as there are ancient Pharisees, there are accidental Pharisees of our day. We don't mean to be too hyped up and so religious, but we get excited and then we turn people off in our faith. And then we've done a a couple more series like A Beautiful Mind from Colossians 3, What Not to Wear. Y'all remember some of those? And here we are in Colossians 4, just kind of wrapping it up. And we're going to read together, uh, look down at your scripture. That'll be helpful. If you don't have a Bible, then we're going to put it up on the screen. Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 18. And the instructions in my Bible say a final greeting. You ready for this? Now, some of these names are hard to pronounce, so you guys just be ready. If I struggle to pronounce a name, I'm going to point to one of you, okay? And then I'm going to need you to say it out loud. Is that, is that good? Tyler, are you good with that? I could point to you, okay? Durden, I could point to you back there. Joey Melton, maybe even you, okay? Dan's a visitor today. I could point to Dan. So you guys, you want to be on the edge of your seat. You want to be ready, okay? Final greetings, Colossians 4, 7 to 18. Uh, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I hear him witness that he has worked hard for you and those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. 
Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. And like he started the letter, grace be with you. The final farewell to the church here, knowing that this church would spread it to other churches and a couple of churches in particular. I read about a story of a baby camel. And the camel was, went to the pool, a pool of water to, to get a drink. And as he was drinking of water from this pool, he began to study his reflection. And as he studied his reflection, the baby camel asked his mother camel, camel rather, uh, where do we get these long eyelashes or why do we have such long eyelashes? And the mother camel said, so that we can see through the sandstorms. When others grow blind or can't go on, we can continue on because we can see because of these long eyelashes. And he said, Mom, why do we have such wide feet? And the mother said, so that we can continue through the treacherous terrain of the desert so we won't shift in the sands and fall under or sink. He said, Mother, why do we have these large humps on our back? She said, we have these large humps so that we can go on for days and days and we can live long without having to have one drop of water to drink. She continued, we can see further, walk further, go longer, live more fully in the desert than any other animal. And the baby camel said, well, mom, why are we in the zoo? (laughs) Habitat is important, wouldn't you say? This message is brought to you by PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals. Release the camels, please. But habitat is important for all of God's creatures. I think we we could agree on that. But what is your habitat as a person? People are created to solve problems, to overcome challenges, to participate in something that's greater than themselves with other people. Let me personalize that to you. You are created to solve problems. You're created to overcome challenges. You are created to participate in something greater than yourself with other people. It's so easy, though, to get not involved, to live a life of inclusion. But inclusion does many dangerous things. Scientists, doctors, people are revealing to us. Inclusion, it it muzzles our motivation. It extinguishes our enthusiasm. It limits our lives. If if we live to ourselves prolonged seclusion... Uh, It it harms your sense of identity. It leads to self-pity. People that are hypochondriacs tend to be alone. They get alone with their thoughts and they lose just the larger vision of the world. One study revealed, in fact, it asked participants and hundreds volunteered, kind of an odd study, but hundreds of people volunteered to be injected with the virus that causes the common cold. And they discovered that people that reside in seclusion, these people that relationally are left alone, that they, they, get the, they get sicker than the people who are with other people, that they actually produce more mucus. And I'm telling you, it's what I thought all along. Unfriendly people are snottier than friendly people. It's, it's a scientific fact. 
The Scripture says to us, as we see this warm letter, and this, by the way, Colossians reminds me of Romans, one of probably the greatest theological work ever. There's just 16 chapters right there after Acts that some Bible uh, scholars have said if you were uh, marooned on a deserted island, Romans would be the one book from the Bible that I would take. And Paul, when he writes this great theology, Romans 1 through 15, he concludes it by giving some final greetings. You see the relational side of this man who was a missionary like none other. And so we have it here in Colossians. It reminds me of what uh, one of my favorite writers, Dallas Willard, wrote. He talked about this very idea here about rootedness, about reciprocal rootedness in in a great book called Divine Conspiracy. And he said in Divine Conspiracy that reciprocal rootedness, as he defined it, it's like just as a tree is connected in the earth and gains its nourishment, so the human heart has to be connected to other human hearts to be fully nourished. He has talked about another idea in the book Divine Conspiracy, what he calls circles of sufficiency. When you were born, it was you and your mama. Remember those days when you were a little bitty? You don't, but your mom held you. She would feed you and pamper you and cuddle with you. And she would say to you, everything is okay. But everything was not okay, right? Your mama lied to you. You've been lied to from the very beginning. But everything is not okay because that circle is not sufficient into itself. A, a mom and a child need a need the family. The family needs an extended family. That family needs a neighborhood and a workplace. And there's a, there's a circle of, of a nation. The nation needs the broader world. But God's vision for the world, His message to the world is Himself a, a Trinitarian God, a triune God, a three-in-one God where the only circle of sufficiency is God Himself. And Dallas Willard writes in Divine Conspiracy that our sense of ourself, how we're going to flourish and grow and overcome the condition of sin that we're bound in, is to understand the sufficiency of God alone. Colossians chapter 4, Paul closes this letter and he mentions some guys and he uses sort of a trifecta that I find beautiful. Did you see this? He talks about beloved brothers, faithful ministers, and fellow servants. And he lists some. As I studied it this week, I present it to you now. Preachers are good at this kind of stuff. We can systemize almost everything. Here are eight of the men that he mentions, these, these brothers in Christ. Here's how, as I study them now, every Every man listed at the end of Colossians 4, everyone except justice, uh, is mentioned other places in Scripture. Justice is mentioned only in Colossians 4. But here you see Tychicus. There's a lot of cusses here. Tychicus is one I would call one with a servant's heart. Colossians was written a couple of years after Paul had been arrested and jailed in Jerusalem. He had been, uh, Tychicus had been with him through his uh, trials as he stood before Felix and Festus and Agrippa. And now in Colossians, this guy was with him. He served him right along with him. He took uh, responsibilities off of him. This guy's mentioned several places in Scripture, and this guy served. You know anybody like that? I mean, they want to help out. They didn't necessarily lust after the limelight, savor the spotlight, but they, uh, Tychicus really wanted to serve. Another man that he mentions is Aristarchus. Uh, one we could say with a sympathetic heart. It says, in fact, you just read this. It says there that he's a fellow prisoner 
of the Lord. And we learn from Scripture that there, he was in prison like Paul, but that at other times he shared his chains. He had a heart to say, I want to relate to you. He was sympathetic with them. The Greek translation renders to us one who caught a spear. This man was one who caught a spear for the Apostle Paul. Paul, when he thought of this brother, when he thought of this beloved brother, this faithful minister, this fellow servant, he thought of the sympathy of this man. He can relate to me. He knows where I've been. Next up, we see uh, mentioned Mark. One, I would say, one with a surprising future. And the reason that I put it this way to you this morning is Mark is recorded for us several places, but specifically in Acts chapter 13. Some of you are aware of this. Mark was one who deserted them when the going got tough. In fact, the friction was so great that Mark's desertion led to friction specifically between Paul and Barnabas. And Paul, if you know much about Paul, he said, hey man, this guy's not faithful. Let's separate. Let's not have fellowship with any, him anymore. Let's go this way. And Barnabas is like, no, this guy, he's got what it takes. And Paul and Barnabas themselves, Acts tells us, went separate ways. They couldn't agree on this leadership issue. But we see, and it's what's beautiful about this, if you follow the story and read between the lines, read in the lines and read between the lines, we see this beautiful story of Mark, who God restored And Barnabas was a big part of that. A lot of Bible scholars believe that Peter, who had also known failure like this man, who deserted Christ when times got hard, that Peter ministered to Mark. And Mark, by the time this book was written through the church at Colossae and Laodicea and beyond, he had gotten back in the fellowship, had become near and dear to them. And Paul, just like Jesus did with Peter after the resurrection, he said, hey, Bring Peter. Make sure Peter is here. And Paul is doing that here with Mark, a similar story. He, he had a surprising future. And a lot of you know that Mark was one of four who wrote a gospel of Jesus. Next up, we see Onesimus, one with a sinful past. What was his trade? Do you know his vocation? He was a slave. He was a slave who had run away. He had run into freedom and reached hardship that was greater than his chains. And he inspired his coming back, his returning, inspired a letter, a book that we have in the Bible, one chapter known as Philemon. And Philemon was a leader in Colossae, in the church there. Philemon hosted the church in his house in those early days. Most churches, you know, this start in a house. And that was true of this church. It started, most people believe, in Philemon's house. And Paul's making a beautiful beautiful statement here, as he has done prior to this, in talking about slaves and masters. He says, hey, Onesimus and Philemon, you are brothers in the Lord. There is no distinction in who you are. You are brothers first and foremost. He was one with a sinful past. We see here another person Paul is dear to is justice, one with a strong commitment. He's numbered among three who he says were of the circumcision. In other words, he had a commitment because he had to identify Paul with Paul through the cultural components of that. And then Epaphras, one with a single passion. Epaphras was the pastor, of the, he was the Colossians pastor. He was the founder of the church. He was the one who delivered the letter. He delivered three different New Testament letters and had to traverse 
a lot of terrain to be able to do that. All through Italy, all through the Aegean Sea, through the Adriatic Sea. He had to go through hard places specifically to get to the city of Colossae to deliver this. And Paul is saying here, man, I love you and I appreciate you. And as you study him, he's mentioned at chapter 1 and other places. He's a guy with a single passion. I would say sitting in my seat, I would say any pastor that starts a church and stays faithful at that church probably has a single passion. But it's not the vocation that really is lauded and praised by Paul. We just read that it's, it's the fact that he is a prayer warrior. He is an agonizer. That verse there that Paul talks about also mentioned in chapter 1 is that this man agonizes. He labors in prayer. Do you know anybody like that? Man, they lift you up and they find out what's on your heart and what your fears and aspirations are. They're listening to you. They want to learn and they want to pray that God's design would ring true in your life. This was this pastor. You know, pastors today, I got to guard against this, but pastors today are rock stars and celebrities and CEOs and sellers of books. They're the people that get people to conferences and all. But when you study the scripture, we see a pastor like this who first and foremost agonized, labored. He loved his people. He prayed for them. Imagine that, a pastor with a shepherd's heart for his people. That's what we need today. We see Luke. A lot of you know about Luke. There's a gospel that bears his name, just like Mark. I bet most of you know that. But Luke was one with a specialized talent. He was, say it if you know it, he was a, he was a physician. He was a doctor. That was his specialized talent. I believe that he traveled with Paul to provide care for him. Many of you know that Paul had a recurring illness. People love to talk about this. He mentions to the church at Corinth in the book of 2 Corinthians that he prayed to God for God to take away something from him. He prayed once. He prayed twice. There were three intense prayers. There was the recurring, ongoing prayer that he prayed that God would remove the thorn in his flesh. But God thought the better part of valor was to leave that with Paul. And I believe as... My knowledge of Scripture, I believe that Luke was with him to care for him. Pretty cool. You're a pretty VIP guy, aren't you? If you've got a doctor that just travels with you. I'd like like my own physician, wouldn't you? But Paul was so important in the kingdom. And Luke sees that. And Luke says, I want to be with you where you are. This recurring illness, I'll care for you. But look, he gave him care, but he also gave him competence. Luke was a very smart guy. He was cultured and educated. He was among the intelligentsia, just like Paul. Sometimes we read the book of Acts and we see that passage where it says that the disciples, that they were uneducated men, that their education was important, what it was important, that they had been with Jesus. And we use that verse to say, don't go to seminary, don't be educated, don't learn the Bible languages. And that's hogwash. When God set out to use people, men and women, he many times over chose educated people, people who cultivated the life of their mind. And that was Paul. And that was Luke. He last mentions a guy named Demas. And I put it this way. He was one with a sad future. By the way, they teach alliteration in seminary. All the S's, right? But Demas was one with a sad future. Look at 2 Timothy 4, 9. This passage states it simply. It says that Demas uh, has deserted me because he loves this present world. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 4 is believed to be Paul's last words, the last of his last words. We don't know it at the time, 
But Demas was, he was going to desert. He was going to say, man, I love the things of this world. If you're a leader or you aspire to be a leader, I'm looking out at our congregation this morning at our 930 service and I see uh, two different young men, men that are aspiring to be pastors, to be mentors, to ministers, to be probable church planters one day. And it's a, I want these two guys to hear it and really everybody. But if you're a leader, people will betray you. They will desert you and it hurts. There's probably no other sting like betrayal. And Jesus had Judas. Paul had Demas. And not everybody is loyal. Demas had a sad future because he loved the things of this world. Beloved brothers, faithful ministers, fellow servants. Circle that word, servants. And I ask you, what does it mean to you? It's confusing, isn't it, for some of us. Jesus said at one point, you're no longer slaves, but you're friends. In John 15, but then... Then throughout the New Testament, they're called, they're identifying themselves as bond servants and slaves. They, they wanted people to know that they were sold out all the way. But what does it look like to be a, to be a servant? I remember a flight. In fact, I'm, I'm pointing to one flight, but it's been true of several flights I've been on. Maybe you can identify with what I'm talking about. But you're on a flight and the, the people serving, the crew members... Uh, they seem to have bad attitudes and grudging spirits and sad faces. They want to do anything but go the extra mile to help you. I remember one flight I asked for some water, and she's told me it's going to be a while. Right? But I just, it just occurred to me, and she said it with an attitude. And it occurred to me that just moments ago I had watched a video where the CEO of the airline had welcomed us, and he said to every passenger on the plane that service is our hallmark. That's a direct quote. Service is our hallmark. And the video showed crew members, all of them, smiling and helping. They were, they were going over and beyond to help everyone on the plane. And I thought in that moment, what a gap between the rhetoric of the video and the reality of the plane. You see, it's much better to not talk about serving and do it than talk about serving. And not do it. You with me there? Now it'd be easy to stand up here and talk about airlines. In fact, I thought it'd be more appropriate. Wouldn't it be great if, if an airline, if they would just have a video where the CEO says, Hey, welcome to Blank Airlines. And you know, most of you travel with us today because of market forces, you don't have a choice. But we're going to try to do the best that we can. Our our service is inconsistent. Sometimes it's downright horrible. We're trying. We're working really hard to get rid of the surly flight attendants and reward the good ones, but that's really hard to do. So just sit back and enjoy your flight as best you can. Wouldn't that be a little bit better, right, if we were just honest, if we just gave people some realism? But how hurtful is it for us as the church the body of believers, the family of God, to bear the name of Christ and to talk about what we're going to do, what we aspire to do. But then there's a gap between our rhetoric, what the preacher says, and what you say, what the website says, and what we post on social media. There's a gap between that rhetoric and the reality in our community. Be faithful. 
I love this passage. I think it's at the heartbeat of a church. I know you've heard of it. Look at the simplicity of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when Paul talks about how we're, we're one. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're called into one body, but man, we're so different. I mean, we are different, right? Look at the person next to you and say, you are different than me. If, if you know him. Now look at somebody you don't know next to you and say, you are different than me. Now look at someone and say, hey, I kind of like you. Give me those digits, right? No, don't say that. A spiritual gift... Let's read this aloud, church. Would you read it with me? A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. Isn't that great? It led me to think of this next idea that's important for the church. A church at its core is a community of servants organized around our spiritual gifts. Which leads me to think, In 2014, wouldn't it be a beautiful question if we said, how many folks have identified their gift and are using it to serve others on a team? What if we didn't care so much about how many people were sitting in the seats, but our driving force, our sense of calling was how many folks have identified their gift And are using it to serve others, not as lone rangers, but on a team. What an impact we could have. To be teams with beloved brothers, faithful ministers, fellow servants. Remember the great Lion King? Did you read it? Did you see it? And you'll know that Zimba was that self-absorbed, self-pitying little lion. He experienced a tragic failure that just was a crushing weight to him. And he bore the burden of the pain of his past and the worry of his future. And he walked around moping, if you remember. He was rejecting who he really was called to be. And he was surly and he self-pitied himself. And it shows that he didn't summon himself to the greater call of his life. And there's someone that we're introduced to in the Lion King. Do you remember this? Rufiki. Remember Rufiki? Rufiki is a a mandrel, a blue-faced baboon. Some of you remember. And Rufiki would swing from tree to tree, from branch to branch. He would disappear. He would appear. He would vanish. He would swing. He would sway. He had a gift of singing, kind of a taunting kind of song. You know anybody like that? They can just sing and look at you and kind of taunt you. Just get the best of you. Well, that was Rufiki. And he approaches, some of you remember, this young lion with the crushing weight of his tragic failure. And he says to them, you are not who you were meant to become. And from the treetop, perched atop, singing and taunting, he says to him, look, look into the water, gaze and see the reflection and see who you are. And Zimba took him up on the offer and he looked and he said, I am just me. And Rufiki splashed the water. He threw a stone in it. It created a ripple in the water. And as it subsided, Zimba, this young lion, looked in and he saw his father's face reflected in his own. 
And he rises up this young lion. It helps when you have the soundtrack to Lion King in the background. And he rises up and he runs into his destiny. In Swahili, Zimba means lion. Mufasa means king. And Rufiki means friend. I know a friend who told me not long ago that he woke up one day and what he was basically telling me is that he had no Rufiki in his life. He had just turned 40. He had colleagues. He had acquaintances. But he didn't have a really good friend. What does a Rufiki do? You see, a Rufiki friend, he helps us see, he helps you see the Father's reflection in your life. He helps you overcome whatever has held you back, whatever tragic flaws you have. He helps you see as the Father wants you to see, and he helps you as you see that to rise up and to run, to take hold of the calling in your life. That's a Rufiki. And I wonder for you, when we see Paul close this letter, not with, okay, church, let's take the giant theological pop quiz. He closes by saying, let me talk about these people that have made this happen, that mean so much to me. And he pleads with them because he knows the time is near. He says, remember my chains, grace with you. Remember my chains. Remember the part that you played in it. But I wonder for you, is there a Rufiki? Is there somebody to turn to? Is there somebody, when life takes a turn, that you can turn to that can help you see that? To be all that God created you to be. It's worse than ever in our day. Because you and I can be, we can be deceived. Like our grandparents were not deceived. Because we can point and click and think that we are connected to other people. But when life derails, do you have somewhere to go? When you need to talk about the deep stuff, who do you call? It's what I love about Paul. And it's a call to every church leader, to every future church leader, to the future of this church, to any churches that we might plant to be driven by relationships, to let love reign supreme. Not a brother, he said, but a beloved brother. Paul would say in Romans 12, let your love be without hypocrisy. Let it be earnest. Let it be genuine. Let it be sincere. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Love in that way. And if you do and if I do, we will have beloved brothers and sisters in the family of God. And I believe a church ought to be a family. Do you? I believe it ought to be a place where you find security, where you find hope, and you find help, where you find people, and you can, be, you can experience this reality where words are reliable, where worship is meaningful, where faith is invincible, where grace is noticeable, where love is tangible. Pray with me. God, I know this time of year, there's a song that we sing that has a line in it that says, faithful friends who are dear to us gather near to us. 
And that rings with meaning to some of us if we happen to have faithful friends. But Lord, some of us have ourselves been a Demas or we've been hurt by one who has betrayed us. Or we've been shallow. We've lived in a point-and-click world of acquaintances and colleagues with no Rufiki. No friend to point to allow us to see when the water stills the Father's reflection in our own. Lord, create in us reciprocal rootedness. Help us to learn about circles of sufficiency and how, Lord, we need others and we need to open up our world to other people and to other people very unlike us. And Lord, a church can be like this church mentioned in Colossians where there's a doctor who probably has got it going on, who's got it together, who's educated and very cultured. But he or she's godly. And there could be folks who have been enslaved, literally been slaves, who who have a past that they're very much ashamed of. Or a surprising future where maybe there's somebody we've broken fellowship with, someone that we had a disagreement with and we've gone the other way. We've even gone the other way in your name. But Lord, I wonder, just like Paul learned from his stubbornness and he needed Barnabas, an encourager to show him, I wonder if there's any of us this morning that could learn that same thing. Lord, I pray that you create in us a family where people truly can find security, hope, and help. Lord, close the gap more and more between the rhetoric of what we present when it comes to serving. And Lord, my heart moves to think about the people you have given us who are faithfully serving our community. Twelve who are coming back from Africa now and many more here who are getting involved in partnerships, who are giving time and resources and who are calling others who are realizing we can't do it alone. That the circle has to be wider and bigger and better. Lord, help us discover who we are. And Lord, I would pray that in my own life, I could be the type of pastor to labor, to even agonize in prayer over your people. But Lord, let me not be alone. Raise up others who carry that shepherding gift, who like Epaphras would, would be that for us. Lord, teach us to pray and give us an opportunity now to pray and to worship you in your name. In Jesus, amen.